0: Hello, and welcome to this latest installment of AZ Law here on member-supported Sun Sounds of Arizona. I'm your volunteer reader and Phoenix attorney, Paul Weick. We explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems in this program. Today, we'll be reading several articles from various sources, including one about the Arizona election audit and the public records lawsuit that's going on related to that. One about Attorney General Mark Burnovich seeking Supreme Court decision on Trump-era immigration rules. And while we're talking about Attorney General, we'll also read about the U.S. Supreme Court's opinion in Obamacare and how the Arizona Attorney General played into that. A special report with the Pima about the Pima County Attorney's Office facing rampant turnover and staff upheaval as well. And we'll see what else we have time for in today's program. Let's go ahead and get started with that article. Arizona is still recounting ballots from the 2020 election. Here is why you don't know many of the details. This is from Robert Anglin of the Arizona Republic, dated June 29, 2021. Arizona Republican lawmakers call it America's audit. They say recounting 2.1 million ballots cast in Maricopa County is not about overturning the 2020 presidential election, but making the next one better. Senate President Karen Fan maintains she launched the audit as a way to identify flaws and restore confidence in the voting system. Jump forward more than two months and what has emerged is a process with little public accountability. Records about finances, the businesses involved, and methods they use are mostly being kept from the public. Want to know how much the audit will cost? You can't. Want to know who's paying for it? They won't say. Interested in which lawmakers are working behind the scenes, who's getting paid, who is running the audit's social media pages, who is doing the ballot counting? The lawmakers who bankrolled the audit with $150,000 of taxpayer money say they don't know. That is not an accident. The audit, which began April 23rd and is in its final stages at Arizona Veterans Memorial Coliseum, is being run through private companies. Senate Republicans say in court filings that they can't make audit information public because they don't have it. In other words, the information is in the hands of the contractors hired by the Senate, so lawmakers have no ability or responsibility to release it. The contractor hired by the Senate to lead the audit is Cyber Ninjas, a small Florida company with almost no track record of conducting election audits. Its CEO, Doug Logan, is a Trump supporter and has promoted election fraud theories. Cameras capture the audit and journalists are permitted to observe from a distance, but important questions go unanswered. The Republic first requested documents from the Senate on April 22nd. Any argument that you are not the proper custodian or that you simply don't have the records in your possession flies in the face of Arizona statutes and previous court rulings, the Republic wrote in a May 27th demand letter to Fan and the Senate's attorney. Greg Burton, the Republic's executive editor, said, The press has a unique and express role under the Constitution to be a check on all branches of government, and no function of government is more important in a democracy than the orderly and transparent transfer of power. Yet the operations of this Arizona recount have been carried out in secret by hired, not elected parties acting like government officials. American Oversight, a nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., accused the Senate in a May lawsuit of trying to thwart the law. The suit names Fan, Senator Warren Peterson from Gilbert, and the Senate at large as defendants. It took litigation to uncover the most basic procedures used to conduct the audit, and unfortunately, it took this litigation to test the Senate defendant's remarkable positions, its lawyers wrote in a June 23rd motion. American Oversight formed in 2017 to investigate potential fraud in former President Donald Trump's administration. Executive Director Austin Evers said the public has a right to the documents. Senator Fan promised a transparent process, but she's fighting in court to keep even basic information about the audit out of the public's hands, Evers said in, in an emailed statement. Among the key details the Senate won't divulge about the audit are how much the audit is costing. There's been little public disclosure on the overall expense of the audit, Fan launched the audit with $150,000 of taxpayer money. But costs for hiring private contractors, leasing the Coliseum, buying equipment, paying workers, hiring security, and paying legal costs all are expected to add up to millions of dollars. Fan won't detail payments or agreements with Cyber Ninjas, the Florida company hired to lead the audit, or any agreements made with subcontractors. Cyber Ninjas CEO Doug Logan, a Trump supporter, has promoted election fraud theories. Another question, where funds being raised for the audit are going? Private contractors handling the ballot review have encouraged followers on conservative social media to pour money into three fundraising sites run by former Trump lawyer Sidney Powell, former Overstock CEO Patrick Byrne, and One America News Network personality Christina Bobb. Burns nonprofit is tasked with vetting and doing background checks on volunteers for the ballot review. OAN controls the live stream footage from Veterans Memorial Coliseum. But there is no official account of where that money is going. Burns sought to raise two point eight million dollars, and in May his nonprofit reported taking in one point eight million. Voices and Votes, the group run by Bob and OAN host Chanel Rian, has paid for legislators from other states to visit the audit. The audit also has been a boon to the Arizona GOP. Another question, what lawmakers are saying in emails and texts? The Senate won't say who lawmakers are communicating with when it comes to the audit. The Senate has withheld texts and emails between elected officials and Logan. It has so far declined to disclose texts from Republican Party officials, including those who promoted election conspiracy theories and who have touted the audit, toured the Coliseum, and have been given special access to those working at the audit. The Senate also has not disclosed communications lawmakers might have had with Trump and his one-time lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. It's clear that there were some. Fan, in response to American Oversight's lawsuit, released emails earlier this month in which she boasted of her frequent talks with Giuliani. And that was an article from Robert Anglin and the Arizona Republic dated June 29th. As Arizona is still recounting ballots from the 2020 election, here's why you don't know many of the details. And an update on that, there will be oral argument in that American oversight lawsuit on July 7th, and Arizona's law, AZ Law, will be covering that. Our next article is from the Arizona Capital Times, actually written by Howard Fisher from Capital Media Services on June 21, 2021. The headline, Burnovich seeks Supreme Court decision on Trump-era immigration rule. Shut down by appellate judges, Attorney General Mark Bernovich is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to let him defend a Trump-era rule designed to deny green cards to those at the bottom of the economic ladder. In new filings, Brnovich accuses the Biden administration of colluding with others opposed, Trump rule, opposed to Trump, the Trump rule to deny the high court the chance to review its legality by simply rescinding it. This effectively made it impossible for the justices to review the legality of what had been done under Trump's leadership. Brnovich does not dispute that Biden, as the incoming president, has the right to rescind prior rule enacted by Trump. He said, though, that that requires actually amending the rule, something that involves going through the process, what can be a lengthy process under the Federal Administrative Procedures Act. And that would have put the legal arguments about the validity of the Trump rule on hold, but still kept them alive. The United States did more than just cease to defend the rule, Bernovich continued. Then, quoting federal appellate judge who sided with him, Bernovich said that the move terminated the re- the extreme prejudice terminated the rule with extreme prejudice, ensuring not only that the rule was gone faster than toilet paper in a pandemic, but that it could effectively never ever be resurrected, even by a future administration. So now he wants the U.S. Supreme Court to let him and other Republican attorneys general to, but but because Biden will not, to defend the rule. The ability of immigrants to support themselves has always been a part of the considerations in determining if someone who enters this country legally should be granted permanent status under the rules. Going back to the Clinton administration, they have been much more lax in determining whether someone can get what is formerly known as a permanent resident card. In 2019, the Trump administration adopted a rule that allows the Department of Homeland Security to deny admission to anyone who is likely to become a public charge. It said that would be based on the person's age, health, family status, assets, resources, financial status, education, and skills. And a separate section of the rule said that someone already in the country can be deported if within five years the person has become a public charge. That led to a series of lawsuits across the nation, with several judges blocking the rule from going into effect. It was when appellate courts split on the issue, but before it went to the Supreme Court, that the Biden administration decided it no longer wanted the rule, effectively killing the litigation. That led to Brnovich and other states moving to defend the rule in Biden's absence. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals refused, leading to this new filing with the nation's high court. Brnovich said he and the other states have more than a passing interest in the issue. He pointed out that the Trump-era rule estimated that it would save all the states more than a billion dollars annually. Abolishing it, Brnovich said, means those costs remain with the states. In an earlier interview with Capital Media Services, the Attorney General said this is not the way to be putting money into more people, into more people getting things like Medicaid and public assistance. I think that we need to take care of people that are here legally before we start giving benefits to people who just recently arrived here and don't have legal status, Brnovich said. I am trying to protect Arizona taxpayers. But the Trump era rule would be based solely on the chances someone might need benefits at some point in the future, not whether anyone already here actually is receiving them. One way of accomplishing that was to use income as a much stronger indicator of whether an applicant is likely to become a burden and therefore ineligible. One section says that U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services will generally consider 250% of the federal poverty guidelines to be a heavily weighted positive factor in the totality of the circumstances. In essence, that suggests anyone above that level, $66,250 for a family of four, would have little problem qualifying. At the other end, it says the absolute absolute minimum for ever being considered will be in the neighborhood of half that much. More specifically, if the alien has an income below that level, it will generally be a heavily weighted negative factor, the measure reads. In refusing to allow the Trump rule to take effect, the Ninth Circuit called it inconsistent with a reasonable interpretation of the law on immigration. The judges said the law has always been interpreted to mean long-term dependence on government support and not to encompass the temporary need for non-cash benefits. They also said this failed to consider the effect on public safety, health and nutrition, as well as the burden placed on hospitals and the vaccination rates in the general public. Then there is the fact that the Trump rule sought to introduce a lack of English proficiency into the decisions despite the common American experience of children learning English in the public schools and teaching their elders in our urban immigrant communities. That would have sent the case to the U.S. Supreme Court, as other appellate courts have issued contrary rulings, but for the fact that the Biden administration decided not to defend the rulings to effectively rescinded it. Brnovich wants to intervene to offer a defense of the rule so that it can be resolved on the merits rather than through strategic surrender. The move puts him at odds with Governor Doug Ducey. He criticized the Trump administration in 2019 when it proposed the rule, saying the federal government should focus more on criminal activity, drug cartels, and human traffickers. More to the point, in discussing the issue of who would be able to get permanent resident status under the new rules, the governor said this country needs more than those who already are financially sound. It's not only people at the graduate level and the PhD level who we need, Ducey said. We need entry-level workers and people who can work in the service economy. The governor said it's about opportunity. I want to see people who will climb the economic ladder, he said. I think many of us have an immigrant story similar to that. And that, said Ducey at the time, goes back to his preference for a more balanced approach to immigration than what Trump had proposed. We have the haves and the soon-to-haves, he said, and both of them are are a part of proper immigration reform. The court has not set a date to decide on whether to let Brnovich intercede. He is not alone with Republican attorneys general from Alabama, Arkansas, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Montana, Oklahoma, Texas, and West Virginia, also signing on to his legal brief. And that was from Howard Fisher on June 21st. Brnovich seeks Supreme Court decision on Trump-era immigration rule. And with another Supreme uh, Court-related story, this is a commentary from Robert Robb in the Arizona Republic, and it's dated June 23rd. Headline is, it's not surprising that the Supreme Court upheld Obamacare. What's surprising is why. The rejection by the U.S. Supreme Court of an attempt by Republican state attorneys general, including Arizona Mark Burnovich, to have Obamacare declared unconstitutional in its entirety was, was both expected and unexpected. The argument that the GOP barristers made was as follows. The original Affordable Care Act deemed the mandate that everyone buy an Obama-compliant health insurance policy intrinsic to the Act's guaranteed issue and community rating provisions. Those are the provisions that ensure that those with pre-existing conditions get coverage at no higher rates than anyone else. In a previous challenge, the court found that Congress had no authority to require people to buy a particular product or service. However, Chief Justice John Roberts rescued the act's constitutionality by dubbing the fine for not, ha- dubbing the fine for not having health insurance as a tax rather than a penalty, and hence it was within Congress's taxing authority. A subsequent GOP Congress neutered the individual mandate by setting that penalty at zero. No tax, no constitutionality, went the argument. When the nomination of Justice Amy Barrett Coney was before the Senate, Democrats and liberal activists proclaimed that her confirmation would be the death of Obamacare. This was because liberals mistakenly assumed that conservative judges do what liberal judges do, search out ways to impose their policy preferences. Instead, conservative judging involves applying the law as written and intended by those who enacted it. And in this case, the conservative conclusion is that Obamacare as it currently exists is constitutional. The Congress that originally enacted Obamacare may have regarded the individual mandate as intrinsic to other provisions, but one Congress cannot bind successors. The Congress that effectively repealed the individual mandate clearly did not regard it as intrinsic to the other provisions since it left them in place. Obamacare is now as Congress has made it with guaranteed issue, community rating, Obamacare exchanges, premium subsidies, and no individual mandate. And the program functions. People can and do buy Obamacare policies. So it was no surprise that three conservative judges, including Barrett, joined Roberts and the liberals on the court in rejecting the GOP AG's lawsuit. What was unexpected was the grounds. The court never got to the analysis above. Instead, it found by a seven-to-two margin that the GOPAGs had no standing to bring the case in the first place. Basically, the court majority found that no one was injured by a toothless and unenforceable individual mandate. No injury, no case. Justice Stephen Breyer wrote the majority opinion. In it, he makes a telling observation. Finding otherwise, he wrote, would threaten to grant unelected judges a general authority to conduct oversight of decisions of the elected branches of government. That, however, describes a great deal of what is currently happening, irrespective of which political party is in charge. During Donald Trump's tenure as president, Democratic state attorneys general were constantly bringing lawsuits in federal court challenging his actions as president. Now that Joe Biden is president, Republican state attorneys general are doing the same thing. These state AGs are supposedly representing their states in these lawsuits, but that's a legal fiction. They are really representing themselves, seeking to advance their ideological preferences and their political careers. Brnovich's involvement in this lawsuit is an excellent example. He is very lucky that he lost in court because declaring Obama in its entirety unconstitutional, the outcome he sought, would have been a disaster for Arizona state government, which he purportedly was representing. In 1980, Arizona voters approved Prop 204, expanding the state's Medicaid program to include childless adults up to the federal poverty level. At the time, supporters claimed that federal funds and tobacco settlement monies would cover the entire cost. That turned out to be untrue by hundreds of millions of dollars a year. Obamacare included a provision to expand Medicaid to include childless adults up to 133% of the poverty level, with the feds picking up what ultimately was 90% of the cost. Arizona hospitals agreed to an assessment to pick up the state's share of the federal expansion and the Prop 204 state expansion as well, but only so long as the Obamacare Medicaid provisions remained. If Obamacare goes away, so does the hospital assessment. Next year, the assessment is penciled in to produce nearly $600 million to help pay the state's Medicaid expenses. Brnovich's lawsuit, in addition to throwing the federal expansion population off the rolls, would have punched a big hole in the state budget for covering the Prop 204 mandated population. It is unclear whether tossing this suit out on standing is a one-off, or if it represents a more skeptical court regarding state attorneys general using the federal courts to pursue their policy preferences. If the latter, it would be welcome. And that was a commentary in the Arizona Republic from opinion columnist Robert and That was dated June 23rd of 2021. And as we move in related art, from related article to related article, we have this one from the Arizona Republic. This was June 24th, reported by Lacey Latch. The headline is, State Rep Diego Rodriguez announces a bid for Arizona Attorney General. After two years representing a district in the state legislature that includes Levine, South Phoenix, and Guadalupe, Progressive State Representative Diego Rodriguez announced his campaign for Arizona Attorney General in 2022, the second Democrat in as many days to do so. After graduating from law school at the University of Arizona, Rodriguez spent four years in the late 1990s working in the Pima County Attorney's Office, where he prosecuted cases ranging from misdemeanors to violent crimes. After working as an associate attorney in various private law firms, he founded Rodriguez Law Office PLLC in 2008 and specializes in criminal defense and personal injury cases. In a campaign statement, Rodriguez said, As your next Attorney General, I will use my experience in both the State House and the courtroom to stand up to corporate interests, help Arizona's hardworking families get back on their feet, protect our most vulnerable citizens, and bring real change to our criminal justice system. Rodriguez was elected as District 27's representative in 2018 after incumbent Democrat Rebecca Rios decided to run for the state Senate. During that campaign, Rodriguez highlighted reducing the overall incarceration rate, reforming sentencing laws, and improving reintegration resources for those with nonviolent convictions as key to criminal justice reform in the state. Another Democrat, Chris Mays, also announced her candidacy this past week. Three Republicans, Andrew Gould, Tiffany Shedd, and Lacey Cooper, have announced that they intend to run. Current Arizona Attorney General Mark Brnovich has announced his candidacy for the U.S. Senate. And that was an article in the Arizona Republic reported by Lacey Latch. And I'll note that uh, we did uh, interview Andrew Gould, one of the Republican candidates for attorney general, uh, and uh, he was a former Arizona Supreme Court justice, and we have played that, uh, we have broadcast that on our website, arizonaslaw.org. Hope to speak with these other candidates for attorney general as well. And that headline was State Rep Diego Rodriguez announces bid for Arizona attorney general. And it looks like we're not going to have too much time for the final article that was going to be from the Tucson, from the Arizona Daily Star. Pima County Attorney's Office faces rampant turnover and staff upheaval. It was reported on June 26th by Caitlin Schmidt it ties into the previous article because Rodriguez was Pima County at the Pima County Attorney's office as well. The Arizona Star has covered has been covering this upheaval and the rampant turnover in the Pima County Attorney's office over the last few months and uh, I'll just read the first couple of paragraphs. But unfortunately, we won't have time to read the whole article. It's rather lengthy. A behind-the-scenes battle between Pima County's top prosecutor and the administration she replaced rages on six months after the start of Pima County attorney Laura Conover's term in office. The result, dozens of employee departures and the threat of litigation by one former official. While the 58 employee departures as of June 14th resulted in the loss of more than 450 years of combined experience, the office has brought in 44 new employees as of Tuesday. Conover says the new hires are a diverse and talented group, but some remain concerned about the exodus. The departures are a combination of resignations and retirements, with no employees having been terminated, although Conover said one or two employees did not retain a leadership position in the new round of selections. Employees' reasons for leaving vary, but a handful of former employees say they believe the county attorney's office is no longer prioritizing accountability for offenders, and in some cases, not prioritizing victims' rights, documents, and interviews indicate. With the office's shift in focus, one former prosecutor believes that public safety will suffer as offenders become savvy to the new dynamic that prioritizes rehabilitation over incarceration. And with hundreds of years of experience walking out the door, others are concerned that new employees will have no one to turn to for advice on handling Pima County's most serious criminal cases. Some former prosecutors say they were uncomfortable with new duties, including looking for mitigating factors, either historical or psychological reasons that could explain a defendant's actions and result in lower-level charges or sentences, and immigration consequences, which they say is the defense attorney's job. Employees who have complained about the changes to the office or disagreed with Conover's vision of reform are met with retaliation according to one document obtained by the Star. Conover said employees, some of whom have done things the same way for decades under the previous administration, are saying that professional business decisions are feeling very personal to them and that some are having really personal responses to business decisions. Conover says her mandate from voters is to reframe the priorities of the office and some people are having a hard time adjusting. To those who devoted their career to the previous administration that was tough on crime, I am in a rough position to be the messenger trying to explain what's happening. I have to deliver the message from Pima County that says we must grow in a new direction, Conover said, and it puts them in an uneasy place. Conover said that she vowed not to fire any prosecutors from the previous administration, as other county and district attorneys do when taking office, and that she has kept that process, calling it exhausting administratively. For five months, I really tried to work with some people who were truly unhappy with just everything, and they have finally realized that they don't have to grow with us. They can go on. They're not trapped here. And so they are departing, and we wish them well, Conover said. The commitment from now on needs to be that we are undistracted and undeterred, and we're focusing on the extraordinary hiring that is going on. And we'll leave that article there, Pima County Attorney's Office Facing Rampant Turnover and Staff Upheaval, reported by Caitlin Schmidt at the Arizona Star on June 26th. And with that, we reach the end of this latest installment of AZ Law. In between our monthly broadcasts, look for special on-demand installments. To find them, just go to sunsounds.org and click on the Broadcast Info and Audio tab. Your comments and suggestions to make this program better are always welcome. Call us at 480-774-8300 or email us at info at sunsounds.org. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, thanking you for listening to AZ Law and urging you to stay tuned to member-supported Sun Sounds of Arizona.